Welcome to the Rethinking Security podcast, where we bring a diverse range of voices from across the UK and beyond to discuss and explore security. Hello and welcome to this new podcast series centering human security. My name is Joanna Frew. I am the Outreach Coordinator at Rethinking Security and be talking you through various issues throughout this podcast. During the series, we will be exploring what human security is, how it is different from national security, and what issues and policy areas constitute human security, and how the UK could and should consider these differently to achieve a more cooperative, inclusive and sustainable approach to security. In our first episode today, to set the scene for the whole series, we're going to be unpacking the definitions and concepts of national security and human security, with two fantastic guests who have done a lot to stimulate debate on the way security is thought of and to encourage policy changes to the way it is carried out. I have with me Aditi Gupta, who is Director of Policy at the NGO Protection Approaches and co-founder of the network Minorities in Peace and Security. And also with me is David G, author of the book Hope's Work, Facing the Future in an Age of Crises. He's also a campaigner for peace and human rights. Um, You can find out more about their work in the podcast description box. Both of you are much more than those short introductions, though, so I hope we'll get a chance to learn from the breadth of your experiences during this episode. Um, They've both certainly helped me to deepen my understanding and analysis of security policy and how and why it impacts so many issues that I'm concerned about. So I'm very pleased to have you both with me here. Welcome. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) So I'm going to... Just ask David first, actually, um, because David, you wrote Rethinking Security's founding discussion paper. Can you tell us more about what human or common security means to you? Yeah, so I think uh, human security can be framed in terms of three core questions. The first is to ask who should benefit from policies that have to do with security. And human security is claiming that the the first beneficiary of security policy should be the people whom those policies affect, particularly people who experience extreme insecurity. Uh, So in that sense, it's a swing away from national security where the state or the elite interests of the state are the primary beneficiary of security policy. So I think that's the first question. Who should benefit from these policies? Mm-hmm. And the second is uh, is to ask, what would that actually mean for people? Uh, what, would sec- what would security mean? How would it be experienced? Human security frames this in terms of freedom. So rather than the absence of threats, important though that is, human security is framed positively in terms of certain freedoms. So one freedom, for example, is the freedom from want. Another is the freedom from fear. And the third is the freedom to live in dignity. And then the third question would be what might lead that way? What kinds of policies would lead to a situation where people progressively experience security in terms of the freedom from want, the freedom from fear, and the freedom to live well, to live in dignity one with another? What what that's describing as a whole is a swing away from security being essentially an elite project where Mm. the prime beneficiary is the state or the 
more precisely, the, the establishment of that state towards the people, the population, the people these policies affect, not just at home, but also abroad. And what I'd like to say, um, really, this is a really critical point, because what I've just described is still very anthropocentric. It still puts human beings at the centre of things, which is a step forward as far as we're concerned. But we really have to be thinking now about ecological security. So situating human security within an ethic of care for the planet as a whole, the more than human world, where the, the non-human species also need to um, also need to be respected. And we need to be thinking about not just the health of our societies, but the health of our ecological context as well, the health and well-being of, uh, of our whole ecological um, experience. Thank you. Just to check, the, the three freedoms, that's from the UN definition of human security. That's from the UN definition of human security. Yeah. There's no single definition of it. Essentially, it's putting the, the locus of the questions about security mm. at the heart of uh, society, the people in, in the society, rather than the, the, the most powerful interests in that society. Mm. That's the essential shift from what tends to get called natural, national security uh, to this uh, human security. And they're, they're not separate. They, do, they may both matter. But human security is really trying to affirm that this question of, of how do people experience security and insecurity in the real world and then shaping security policy around that, shaping local communities and neighbourhoods around those questions as well. Mm. So you would say not only is it about humans, it's about the local, like smaller scale decision making and ability to feed into shaping what security means for for you, rather than the sort of more distant state security. Yeah, indeed. So one of the problems that this approach flags up in the prevailing model is um, is to ask who gets to make these decisions in the first place. The moment there's some very powerful people who are deciding on security policy, well or badly, for everybody else. Uh, and human security really emphasises the the sovereignty of people in their mm. local context to be able to make their own decisions about what they need, because they are the best place to make those decisions for themselves. Of course, the national picture also matters, but human security really says, but the local also matters mm. much more than it does in the, in the uh, national security, which is effectively based on power and control and sort of dominance um, philosophy uh, for many countries anyway. Thank you. Aditi, I want to come to you now because you've worked inside Westminster um, and you now work for the NGO Protection Approaches on Policy and Advocacy. I've looked at Protection Approaches' work and it seems to be more about a human security approach um, to atrocity prevention. So it requires a bit of a different take on security, perhaps along the lines that David has described. But can you... Tell us more about who or what national security protects, what the priorities are. You know, David has described it as an elite project for the establishment, protecting the most powerful interests. Would you agree with that? Would you see a difference between national and human security? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really fundamental question, isn't it? Because yeah. um, I completely agree with David that kind of traditional approaches to what national security is focuses on the state as the referent object. Mm. But the fact is that, you know, by doing that, all of 
the national security infrastructures that we have are focused on countering these sort of traditional threats that come in the form of sort of armed force at borders. Um, so terrorism, great power competition, nuclear rivalry, and so military approaches have consistently sidelined and drawn resources away from preparing states to counter other existential threats, mm. which are really not amenable to military solutions. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, beyond these direct threats to state sovereignty, global health, climate change, migration, food and water security, they all represent common goods whose fragility affects us all. So really you know, looking at the broader definitions of human security that David went through so well. In my view, looking at what retaking agency really mm. means about who security is made for and the fact that, you know, looking at the UN's definition, that one group's security should not come at the cost of another. Mm. Um, and that kind of scales up globally, I would say. And in looking at those transnational efforts of what human security could look like, where humans are centred, but yes, as David says, you know, it's connected to climate security, our planetary security, um, making sure that our solutions are putting forward address the political inequities that have endured through sort of colonial legacies, looking mm. at where these power hierarchies come from. That elite project that David was talking about really is a, is a factor of looking at how different communities and countries have been marginalised over mm. time in history and the kind of enduring power dynamics that are in play now. But really, you know, as well as principles that underpin how our policy making is made, it, it is really about addressing the, the structural inequalities and power dynamic mm. deficits that we have. And part of my role in um, sort of co-founding minorities in peace and security is looking at why those power dynamics exist, addressing those head on, championing intersectional approaches to policy challenges and showing that really to have those kind of approaches we need more representation and inclusion of minorities who know these the impact of um, inequity and marginalization and bad policy the best in these leadership roles so that it's not just based on principle but it's based on representation and inclusion thank you so whose interests are represented in transnational forums like the un or well i'm trying to think about organizations that deal with security but like nato you know how would you say that that's an elite project that sort of represents those power hierarchies that you're talking about globally um, and maybe isn't somewhere that security in the sense that you've both been describing is able to be discussed? Well, I think actually um, NATO is, is a good example mm. of looking at how much focus and resource and attention is given to looking at national security through the military first sort of prism, mm. you know, in terms of looking at where priority is given, where decisions are made and what framework they're made within. If you're looking at these kind of military decisions, and it's probably something we'll come to in, later on in the podcast, we're looking at, you know, where the military is best equipped to respond. Often, mm. this is looking at 
the sharp end of crises when really you're just reduced to firefighting um, and responding to sort of kinetic threats and, and growing insecurity. Whereas looking at a human security approach provides you far more tools of looking at upstream mm. prevention of violence and insecurity that really looks at, you know, a rights-based approach mm. um, that focuses on what David so clearly outlined about, you know, the freedom to rather than the freedom from. Mm, mm. And I really liked that phrase you used about the sort of the fragility of common goods like the planet, I guess, like water, um, food and other resources that make up our human security um, or our access to them gives us a sense of human security. I mean, it's really interesting talking about the power hierarchies, the enduring dynamics um, from colonialism. For me, that's that's interesting. I, I studied history, so I'm always interested to discuss more about that. But I'd like to move on and, and ask you both. So the Ministry of Defence, um, and I think the government more generally, kind of are seeking to champion human security at the moment. The MOD says that it complements national security ra- rather than replacing it. And it wants to consider human security um, in all its operations and in its other activities. And then in one of their documents, I read that they say that this will help maintain their legitim- legitimacy and the campaign authority of UK defence. How do you think the MOD makes sense of the concept of human security? Is that a good thing? Um, does it really address what human security means? I think it's a good thing that human security as an idea has made such inroads into into traditional approaches to uh, national security so that it has to be taken seriously in some way. But as Aditi was alluding to just now, it entails a paradigm shift, Mm. a radical shift, uh, at the heart of which is this question of who gets cared about. And this would seriously challenge a lot of the traditional assumptions about security, which is centred on uh, the nation state's power, uh, military capabilities, Mm. particularly power projection. So if you were to take human security seriously, you'd have to treat all of those assumptions as problems. Really is looking at the nature of security as it is experienced by people. And the fact is that uh, while the Ministry of Defence can be progressive on a whole suite of issues, actually, and I can give examples of those, the military action that the UK has been involved in most prominently since the turn of the millennium has been expeditionary armed force, mm. um, which human security would, would obviously recognise as being a fundamental problem, given the, the uh, so many harms emerging from that that kind of approach. So uh, I think it's important to recognise that the the problems that national security identifies still matter, but they need to be situated into a larger framework of what it means for people and the planet to be safe and to flourish. And in that context, you can then ask, at what point is it appropriate for military force to be used, if at all? And within mm. rethinking security, we have different views about that. The important thing is that the question of what the military Ministry of Defence does, what the armed forces do, needs to be resituated in this other question of what does security actually mean for people in the first place? And then that would really radically change the way the military is used, if indeed it is used at all. Mm. Aditi, what, what do you think about that? Is it 
something that you've um, come across in your work, like the way that the MOD describes security or human security and how it tries to practice it? Yes, in my previous role, I, I ran a parliamentary interest group on drones in modern conflict. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of our work was engaging with the military precisely on these issues and, mm -hmm. and really, you know, welcoming the fact that human security was being taken seriously in the MOD and within the military. I agree with David that this is it's a positive development, but at the same time, it needs to be integral to a cross-departmental mm. whole-of-government understanding of what human security is and the fact that actually there isn't a binary between domestic policy and international mm. policy. Our human security, our domestic and global security is interconnected and the same rights and protections should be ensured equally across the world. You know, it should be mm. sort of integral to our approach. And, and the fact is that as it stands, the role of the military uh, has been one that has been the best resourced, I would say, is kind of seen as the first port of call because so much of policy is still focused on that sort of uh, responding to symptoms rather than root causes mm. of insecurity. So kind of that's still that firefighting element. But the problem is that without that cross-departmental approach, the military itself does not have the political mandate that, say, the Foreign Office does and the Home Office does in looking at um, addressing human rights deficits, political inequity, and also the kind of political power analyses of why violence happens in the first place. So in terms of what the military can do, I think it is limited, mm -hmm. and it really is something that needs this integrated approach. I mean, one kind of very simple, clear, very sad example is the UK's policy in Yemen, where, mm. you know, they've supported Saudi Arabia's air campaign, which, you know, has caused so many civilian casualties, but also destroyed um, healthcare facilities at a time when COVID-19 was raging through the globe, mm. you know, kind of showing how the linking of um, our health and sort of these global common goods uh, really do affect each other and should be seen as a real a coherent mm. whole. So that's the UK support for Saudi Arabia's air campaign in Yemen? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that, you know, um, in looking at that disjointed policy, so much humanitarian aid went to Yemen, whilst so much, mm. um, so, you know, so much profit was made from arms sales, which then basically destroyed the effects of mm. that aid. So it's just so disjointed and not part of this coherent approach of what human security could really be. Yeah, that's really fascinating and quite upsetting, I suppose, that there isn't a joined up approach because it seems so counterintuitive to provide aid to a country whilst selling, allowing the sale of weapons to a country that's bombing that country. Um, and that's been going on for years. I guess I'd like to ask the question, why do you think that that joined up conversation doesn't happen across government? Is it just that limited role that each department plays and they don't, I guess they work in silos or... I, I think, you know, siloing is, is a big part of it. Mm. You know, take human security in the military, for example. The human security sort of framework is actually used outside of situations of armed conflict. So in situations of armed conflict, the protection of civilians framework is used. Now there is growing understanding around an atrocity prevention approach. Mm. Um, and that is growing in... Um, 
in support in the Foreign Office and the FCDO, but I don't and that's think some of the work that much... you've been doing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and and I don't think there has so far been much sort of cross fertilization with the MOD in how success is really measured. What do what mm. do these outcomes look like? Like what are we what are we looking for and what are we trying to prevent? Um at the moment it's so disjointed, but it doesn't mean that the thinking and the political will is not there. There are so many disjointed initiatives, which are great, which are, you know, focused on SDGs, um, preventing sexual violence in, in conflict, you know, human security, women, peace and security, protection of civilians. But they really do need to be joined up. Mm, mm. David, is that you said you had examples of some of the progressive policies, would you call them policies, that the military has implemented? Is that some of the things that you were thinking of or are there others that you think that the military has done well? Uh, I think there are many people within the military who take a broader view and mm -hmm. are willing to uh, ask difficult questions of the ways in which the military has been used, including some very senior people within the military and the MOD. I think where there's a certain amount of institutional inertia and uh, certain habits of policy and action on the global stage, which this country as the United Kingdom, are in this country as the United Kingdom, are particularly marked, possibly because we have a we used to be an empire and we haven't quite mm. moved on from that uh, mindset yet. We're very attached to this idea of being an important nation in the world uh, rather than one nation among others in the community. We want to be more important and we still have that mindset, I think, in the policy culture but also in the public culture. Uh, and that, I think, is a real serious obstacle to kinds of things that uh, we're talking about today, where mm. security is understood as a common right that everyone has, is entitled to, wherever they may become, wherever they may be in the world. A very different way of thinking about what Britain's role in the world might be at the national level. But to give an example of where these two paradigms sometimes come into conflict, the Ministry of Defence has actually been quite progressive on the child soldiers issue. So this mm. is the enlistment and recruitment of children into armed forces, children under the age of 18 in um, Africa, East Asia and so on, really being quite strong on the call to end the recruitment of children for military purposes across the board. And yet, when the question comes back, well, what's your policy in the UK? They have to say, well, we enlist at 16 mm -hmm. um, in this country. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you have um, uh, the tension between the two policies where the government here uh, believes that it could not staff the armed forces without enlisting 16-year-olds. That's not really true, but that's the view. Um, uh, but doesn't want other countries to be doing it uh, and often invokes human rights reasons mm. for that argument. So you've got the tension between the two paradigms in that example, I think. Mm. But also uh, you, what you have, what that results in effectively is a racist policy where countries in other parts of the world can't be trusted to enlist children, but we can. Mm. Uh, and really the better mm -hmm. approach, the human rights-based approach and the human security-based approach would be to lift all children out of any involvement uh, with military organisations completely across the board. And I'm actually hopeful that we're, the world may be moving slowly in that direction. Mm. But one of the blockages is that these wealthy states, these powerful states in the global north, uh, some of them, not very many actually, but some of them still very attached to uh, this idea that we can't staff the armed forces without children. 
so there's an example of where the MOD has been progressive on an issue, but still coming up against its own assumptions and mm. uh, traditional ways of thinking. That is fascinating. That um, Aditi mentioned as well that sort of tension between domestic security and foreign policy and how they should be the same. And let's, yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit more in a minute. But I'm also interested um, in this idea of these kind of deeper barriers to change. David, you mentioned institutional inertia and this kind of imperial hangover and not quite accepting that maybe we don't need to be one of the most powerful states in the world and and have that place at the table. But Aditi, I'd like to ask you as well, do you think those are some of the main barriers to that deeper change or overcoming those tensions? Or are there others that you would add to that? I, I think I think there are a few. <laughs> so, you know, there, there, there are definitely those tensions between domestic and foreign policy. Mm. And I think, you know, there is growing understanding that there needs to be more of an interconnected approach there. You know, for example, take the UK's um, policy on China. Mm. Um, you know, so much of it has been kind of framed around national security, kind of hard security rhetoric. But at the centre of it are human rights questions about, you know, Chinese actions against in, in Xinjiang. Um, but mm-hmm. also the ramifications of the UK's kind of China policy within the UK itself. Following the wake of COVID, mm. there was a, a sharp rise in hate crime uh, against um, East and Southeast Asian populations here. And really, you know, that's where organisations like mine, like Protection Approaches, uh, really think that interconnected approach is important. We yeah. stepped in to um, start a, a community-led a hate crime reporting service that is led by, you know, um, 13 consortium partners that really does show that you need a combination of community-led, contextualised local expertise and solutions plus state action to address kind of stru- structural inequities and, and sources of instability and, and violence. Mm. So, you know, it's a real combination that takes these things in combination. And, you know, so beyond that tension, I do think that some of the barriers are looking at kind of the flaws of the the theory of change of how policy decisions are taken. First and foremost, the issues that are, that disproportionately impact minorities Mm. um, are the, the very issues that where minority voices are generally excluded or erased. We use concepts and political ideologies that really neglect the vital role of race, intersectionality Mm. and local expertise in sort of analysing and remedying current security challenges. So this really um, results in political analysis and policy decisions that obscure local realities and are divorced from a proper examination of local, national, regional interests, power dynamics and the different kind of solutions that are on um, that are on hand and really what you're left with then are solutions that are incomplete and and unsustainable you know looking at that kind of broader element of of the barrier we're dealing with but then also looking at the absence of thinking through long-term prevention and and being bound by different kind of silos between Uh, armed conflict and peacetime situations Mm. Uh, and not seeing that actually root causes of insecurity and violence cut cut across all cycles of of where violence manifests. Thank you. There's so many things that I want to pull out of that. First of all, so you were talking about how policy decisions are made and those who make them not necessarily understanding the impact on the communities 
that are affected by those decisions, particularly marginalised communities um, or racialised communities. And I just want to ask, in the work that Protection Approaches has done on the ramifications of the COVID response on um, Chinese and East Asian communities, how has that been received by policymakers? I mean, it sounds amazing uh, what you've managed to do, like bringing communities together. How has that been received by the sort of, as David described it, the kind of elite establishment that normally make that kind of policy? It's been responded to very well. Mm. Um, so really, it's, uh, you know, we've been working with the London Mayor's Office. We've been working with the Department for um, Housing Leveling Up. And wow. really, the response has been very warm and mm. very constructive in really taking seriously the fact that you can't make solutions for communities without mm. their leadership and without their expertise and their knowledge and their representation. It's not it's not just about inclusion in a tokenistic way. It's really about leadership and mm. a, and the devol- devolution of power, but also the fact understanding that our human security, our protection is a, is a shared collective responsibility. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. And I think that understanding of, of leadership from local communities is key. And you mentioned, you, you used the phrase, the devolution of power. And I suppose that's that's one thing that's always hard for people in power to give up is their, their power, their seat at the table. The other thing that I wanted to pull out of what you said previously was this, so you said the sort of silo between armed conflict or thinking around armed conflict and peacetime policy. But my understanding is that the MOD are moving towards this idea of kind of always operating, I think they call it just below the threshold of conflict um, or and a kind of grey zone where they are constantly on the alert for threats and, and dealing with them in a way that might might not be obviously um, the UK engaging in armed conflict, but we might be training armies overseas or using like drones for surveillance to to monitor threats and that sort of thing. Where do you see the conflicts between national security and human security there? Like, can you are there any examples? This question is to both of you. Any examples of how that might undermine the promotion of human security when we have this sort of an idea of kind of perpetual threats or perpetual conflict? I can have a pop at that if you like. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult question, but I think perhaps we the kinds of military activities you're describing don't really belong to uh, traditional military territorial defence. They're part mm. of a project of coercion and control, the use of drones okay. over territory in other parts of the world, special forces units landed in secret in various Mm. conflict situations and so on. So this is part of a, we talked about it being a lead project, but it's, it's also a national project where the then this a particular nation, in this case, the UK, is trying to exercise its power mm. in the world for all sorts of reasons and interests that have nothing to do with the safety of its own population or indeed necessarily the, the, even less so the population uh, populations in other parts of the world. So what you have there, this um, national 
security project becoming shading into a project of dominance and control, coercive right. um, control. Whereas human security, the philosophy behind it is one of solidarity and care, not to stand over the world, but to stand with it, not to exercise the power to control the world, but to exercise your power to care, to recognize mm -hmm. other people's rights to be safe and secure in all sorts of ways. And this really runs right the way through the entire uh, question of uh, the, the entire policy culture of the UK and indeed other countries too. And there are differences between countries on this. But mm -hmm. if we think about um, the focus on uh, atrocities by non-state armed groups on UK soil, for example, which is a serious threat. It does matter. It does need attention. And this is a traditional focus or increasing focus of national security policy, that this is a serious thing. It needs to be taken seriously. But at the same time, three women are killed by their partners or by men every week mm. in England and Wales, many times more than the people who are killed by atrocities by non-state armed groups. Mm. So that also matters. And if you recognize that all both of these things matter, not just one, if you wanted to craft policy around both of those things mattering, it would look very different. The resources that would go into uh, women's shelters, into domestic violence uh, initiatives, into um, appropriate policing to, to to stop this kind of to stop this femicide from happening in the first place, mm. and all the other initiatives that would be required to do that. But it's very difficult to do that if all the attention is on one much narrower, but still serious, but much narrower concern of atrocities by non-state armed groups. I'm saying they both matter, but what human security tries to do is to say that they both matter not just the one that appears to threaten the power of the state. Again, you take something like the food system, where we've lost a third of our topsoil globally over the last uh, 50 or 70 years or so through industrial agricultural practices. If we can't grow food, none of us are secure. Yeah. And particularly people living on marginalised land are very insecure. So the way in which we grow food becomes a human security question in the way it's not really a national security question. Uh, if children are dying from mold spores in uh, in our own towns and cities here, um, then the, the question of financial and economic security, economic justice, economic equality becomes a human security question as well. So it's really taking in all of these things that have not been traditionally considered security questions and making them security mm. questions. Uh, and Aditi mentioned earlier, of course, the the ecological crisis being an overriding, overarching security problem. It's not to say that it needs to be turned into only a security problem, but mm. it, it, it has a huge, it constitutes a huge threat to millions of people worldwide and the integrity of the earth as well. So in that sense, it's a problem for um, people who want to take the, the meaning of the word security seriously. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Next episode, we are actually going to look at food systems and what turning climate change or the climate crisis into a security issue might mean and whether that's that's good or bad. Um, but Aditi, did you want to add anything to that, this question of what is the impact on human security if if our foreign policy is sort of operate, well, our military policy, defence policy is operating in a kind of heightened state of of threat or, or using these different ways to kind of engage in, in a sort of grey zone of conflict rather than declaring war? It's, it, it's, a, it's a big question, I think a very pertinent one for our times. Um, 
I think I would think about this sort of grey zone, more blurred kind of warfare or engagement mm. as driven by actually kind of three main priorities um, that I think are understandable, but perhaps don't secure the results that mm. we really want to see. So, you know, the first one is really looking at cost cutting. Um, the UK is trying to do a lot, be a global leader or not very much. Um, you know, the <sighs> diplomatic service has really like suffered so yeah. many uh, deep cuts. Um, our aid programs have been slashed. Um, you know, what we do have is um, the need to be present um, across the world in a positive way. And mm. part of this grey zone engagement is is um, towards this element. So the persistent engagement strategy is really looking at um, keeping a handful of different um, UK troops or advisors in different countries so that we can be at the right place at the right time. Um, you know, the second sort of factor I would say is being risk averse um, and that's really where things like drones and, and special forces operations come in because there's a there's a lack of evaluation there's a lack of oversight democratically there's less risk to public reputation um, and if there are any mistakes it doesn't really air again it's part of that cost-cutting element as well you know it's sort of seen in this in this positive way and then thirdly looking at stabilization so prioritizing stability and keeping a lid mm. on insecurity rather than actually addressing the root causes of where that insecurity that marginalization those grievances all of those come from so really it's kind of looking at addressing security threats that are appearing in what you know maybe in the military paradigm is seen as the gray zone but really what we're looking at is insecurity that arises outside of the confines of armed conflict where really maybe that's where the military is meant to engage mm. so you know we're missing opportunities to address violence in non-conflict settings so and, and and looking at violence that really stems from that um those human rights deficits that polit political inequity where um you know hate and division starts and where that prejudice is weaponized and mm. then used by um, more malign actors, you know, whether it's, um, you know, Putin's use of um, political homophobia to mm. justify um, and underpin, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, or whether it's the um, Taliban conducting its, its gender, you know, what's been called gender apartheid in Afghanistan. Mm. This is so in, in, intimately linked to what David was talking about, the gender-based violence in the UK domestically. The fact that, you know, our freedoms are shared, they're collective, and really the international community needs to come around those shared understandings of, of and those ethics of care um, and what that can really look like. Um, mm. We need this broader, human-centred, politically informed solutions that prioritise upstream prevention um, and not just firefighting the most... Um, you know, grave symptoms of violence that we see at the other end. Mm. Thank you. And that leads on well to my final question, which you might have just answered, but I'll give you a chance to add anything else. Human security seems desirable on a national scale, accepting that there are other threats that have to be responded to, have to be responded to, um, perhaps more in a, 
using more traditional ideas of security and defence. But how could um, ideas of cooperation and those three freedoms um, be implemented on a national scale? Does it matter which parties in government, for example, or is it something that needs to be embedded more in, in like the culture of, of, of the UK, of UK foreign, foreign and defence policy? I would probably say that what we are kind of looking at in terms of the future of where this policy making could go mm. um, is really, you know, what I, what I keep sort of putting forward is this shared collective responsibility and this understanding that this approach needs to be rooted in equality, mm. um, inclusion, intersectionality, um, in order to have policy that is sustainable um, and and really complete. Um, you know, I think part of this is is understanding what we leave unchecked and where we take action. It is about prioritizing. Um, and you know, if you if you take um, our own country for example, you know the the factors which which create that sort of hate and othering and that kind of insecurity and that kind of instability really do come from um, you know valid grievances. Mm. And if you leave that unchecked, um, what can happen is that um, that those prejudices, those divisions are taken advantage of. And we see that in this country with rhetoric around migrants in yeah. the media, um, you know, around trans rights. Um, yeah. And that can lead to violence, which we have seen in attacks against um, migrants and, and asylum seekers um, in this very country. Yeah. And then looking at that long view, if we don't stand and check that violence, that's when at the most extreme end, left unchecked. It can be part of a systematic campaign of violence, mm. um, like we see in the atrocities in Ukraine, for example, um, you know, to wipe out Ukrainians. Mm. Um, that's when that can drive and exacerbate full-blown conflict. So, you know, it's, it's looking at how we look at those, the broad stream of of violence and its cycles and making sure that we have the tools that um, can disrupt, de-escalate and mm. really lean into that ethics of care um, and positive security using our diplomatic tools, our developmental tools, um, looking at our security and trade partnerships, our supply chains, mm. um, looking at our refugee policies, making sure that everything is interconnected with that shared understanding of goal of what we stand for as an international community and the future we want to see for our planet. Thank you. That's like huge ideas, but also some really just practical ways that it can be done, like the tools that can be employed um, at a national level um, and internationally to achieve that. Um, David, do you have any suggestions about how these ideas of cooperation and freedom could be implemented on a national scale? Um, I would like to answer the question with another question okay <laughs> which is to ask um, ourselves um, whether we really care mm. and how much we care and how we care about the life around us um, whether that's people or planet um, because if we don't believe that uh, other people's lives matter people who are not living in exactly the same way as we are um, then uh, all of these policies will have no roots 
Mm. Uh, or have no soil to put their roots into. It really has. We have a politics of liberty, and liberty is valuable. But we also need a politics of solidarity now, mm. as we go mm-hmm. into these global crises, which are put up, putting our societies under such strain. We can go two ways. One is to hunker down, close the borders. Hide and protect ourselves. As when I say ourselves, I mean the relatively comfortable classes of the rich world from everything that's going to come. Or we can double down on this um, solidarity because we believe that the people most affected mm. by these um, by these uh, crises matter. Uh, and if we can start to foster, and I think there are many promising signs of it, the politics of uh, solidarity and care. Black Lives Matter is a very encouraging example of this, for example, to say that a whole class of people who have been treated as, as if they don't matter are saying we matter, we want to be, we need to be, we have a right to be taken seriously um, and our lives need to be respected and understood and uh, to have their place alongside others, that these things are actually uh, influencing our politics for the better at the same time as other forces are pushing them in another direction. So I think we're at a sort of crossroads point, and maybe that's always true, uh, globally, but nationally as well, and in every way, locally and personally, whether we whether we want our politics to reflect the best of our natures, where really I believe we do actually care about people we've never met before and species that are being lost that we've never even heard of before. Some point, somewhere in our being, we do collectively care about those things. Mm. And I just hope we can learn to craft our politics around that conviction as well. Mm. Thank you. Um, That's, yeah, again, it sounds like, the principles on which the politics um, are built is what matters most. Um, that it's really essential that we, I guess, we can have a public discussion about that and about how we want to um, craft those politics and build solidarity and understand like the intersectionality between um, different issues. And um, I like that phrase that Aditi used as well: the shared responsibility um, for creating security. Um, So it's been really fascinating to discuss this with you both. Um, So thank you so much for coming in, coming onto this podcast. Yeah, just unpacking those different meanings of security, the different concepts of it, how it's made, um, getting an insight into what we could call our national security culture, what that means for the UK government or how it behaves in the world um, and it behaves domestically as well. And of course, how um, it should and could be different. Um, So thank you for your wisdom, uh, your knowledge and the inspiration on this. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much, Jo. Thank you. So please have a look in the episode description for links to Aditi and David's work. Um, In the next episode, I already mentioned, we're going to be looking more at what national and human security mean for our response to climate change. And we have two more exceedingly knowledgeable guests to talk us through what it means globally and particularly for our food system. So hopefully see you then. In the meantime, check out Rethinking Security online or follow us on Twitter for news and views on all things related to national security and what we hope to see change. Um, There's more links for that in the description box. Thank you for listening and see you next time. 